Good afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started here, but uh, welcome. I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you for taking time to come out today. Um, you were at a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Curbing Wasteful Spending in 2016. And for those unaware, the Cato Institute for 40 years has been a research organization dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, free markets, and peaceful international relations. From that perspective, we provide superlative principle policy analysis to lawmakers and public policy staff all over the country. This spring, we released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers, um, copies of which are available on the table as you came in. Uh, therein are over half a dozen chapters that deal generally with fiscal policy, and there are many more that touch on specific programs like Medicare, Medicaid, military spending, and much else. Uh, if you'd like more copies, please contact me after the program. Happy to get those to you. And meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs of the entire 80-chapter volume are available at Cato.org. Um, also at Cato.org, we are live streaming today's event as well as on our Facebook page. So if you'd like to ask any questions, we'd be happy to entertain them during the, during the Q&A portion. Um, further, you may tweet questions and comments to us at hashtag Cato events. Um, for Hill staff, I'll add that both of our Washington-based scholars here today are generally available for consult on tax spending and economic-related matters. So please contact me if you'd like to go more in depth on any of the issues they bring up today. Um, we are here to help you, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and unlike our usual custom, Senator Langford has a vote in the Senate at about 1230 or so, so he will join us at the end of the program instead of at the beginning. Um, with that, I want to turn it over to Chris Edwards, who is our Director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and editor of downsizinggovernment.org, and he is a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues. So with that, Chris Edwards. Thanks a lot to Peter, and thanks a lot for you folks for uh, being here. We have an excellent uh, panel to talk about uh, spending restraint today. Uh, so we will proceed with uh, Romina, Steve, and Ryan, and then uh, hopefully Senator Langford gets here around 12.45 or 12.50, uh, something like that, and then uh, we will turn over to him. Uh, the senator's new study called Federal Fumbles, which is on his website, uh, is not the first or last report we're going to see about wasteful federal spending. The federal government has wasteful been wasteful uh, since the very beginning. Uh, as one example, uh, one of the biggest bureaucracies in the 19th century was the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, and it was remarkably uh, wasteful. An official history of the Bureau said uh, this uh, regarding the Bureau in the 19th century, quote, the Indian Bureau operated under constant and often well-founded criticism of corruption and inefficiency in its handling of the millions of dollars in supplies purchased each year for the reservations, unquote. Uh, Senator Lankford's study illustrates that the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, is still very mismanaged and wasteful, uh, continuing 100 years, 150 years uh, later. Uh, Lankford's study spotlights waste across the federal government. I think uh, uh, we'll be hearing a little bit about that uh, today from some of the scholars here. Just to give you a few examples, uh, Langford found that the, the Air Force spent $745 million on a control system that was later scrapped, uh, a control center that was later scrapped. Uh, the federal government spent a billion dollars for a low-value trolley system in San Diego, and it spends $17 billion a year on erroneous EITC payments, which is kind of remarkable. Year after year, $17 billion going out of this one program to people who are not legally uh, entitled. Uh, wasteful spending in Langford's uh, report, it is true, is only uh, a small fraction of the $4 trillion federal budget, uh, but the report illustrates the broader spending disease affecting the entire government. 
uh, Lankford's projects are not just random failures, they stem from structural failures in the way the federal government operates. Uh, and I discuss those structural failures that affect every agency uh, in my report that was on your chair, uh, why the federal government uh, fails. So let's get to our panel. I'll introduce uh, each of the panelists, uh, then uh, we'll start with uh, Romina. Uh, Romina Boccia is a budget expert and deputy director of the Heritage Institute's Roe uh, Ro Institute. Uh, she writes about corporate welfare and social security and many other uh, spending topics. Uh, she's testified to Congress many times and published in all the major uh, papers. She joined Heritage back in uh, 2011. Uh, she received her bachelor's and master's in economics from George Mason University. Uh, Romina grew up in Germany, but luckily did not import the Euro-socialist view about budgets and economics uh, with her to America, so that's good. Uh, then uh, we'll hear from Steve, who is uh, Vice President uh, of Taxpayers for Common Sense. Uh, he joined TCS way back in 1999. He's a persistent critic of budget deficits and wasteful spending. Uh, he's also testified to Congress many times, and I see Steve quoted uh, in the media frequently uh, regarding wasteful spending of all types. Uh, his expertise uh, ranges from uh, flood insurance to the Army Corps of Engineers to earmarks. Uh, and many other things. Uh, earlier in his career, Steve served as an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard for six years, uh, and according to his bio, he received uh, a variety of awards for his outstanding service. Uh, Steve has a, a BS in government from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Uh, lastly, uh, before the senator arrives, we'll hear from Ryan Bourne, who's an economist at Cato. He writes about many topics, uh, and he, he produces a, a huge volume of uh, excellent uh, output on issues ranging from spending and tax reform. Uh, before joining Cato, Ryan was the head of public policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs uh, in London, and also the head of economic research at the Center for Policy Studies, uh, also in London. Ryan writes uh, weekly columns for the Daily Telegraph uh, and City AM. He holds a bachelor's and master's in economics from University of Cambridge. So uh, we will start with uh, Romina. $2,075. $2,075 is the share of every American, uh, is the share for every American of the federal deficit in 2017. $2,075. The overall deficit came in at $666 billion. Um, if, that, if that is a bad omen, if anything. And Oftentimes, we'll hear lawmakers in practice, especially while they're campaigning, supporting, cutting spending, balancing the budget. Maybe they even introduced um, a bill for a balanced budget amendment. Perhaps they've signed on or co-sponsored a bill for a balanced budget amendment. But what we really need to keep an eye out is how do, what decisions do they actually make when push comes to shove? When confronted with a bill in Congress that um, uh, proposes to increase spending or to reduce spending, how do they vote? That is more important than uh, any press statement, any support for uh, lofty goals like a balanced budget amendment that are not uh, really considered seriously at that time, it's important to see how they actually vote when 
um, when they're confronted with that. And there is a um, there is such a legislative moment that is just on our doorsteps. Um, tomorrow, in fact, federal funding for uh, defense and domestic programs and agencies is scheduled to expire. Lawmakers are discussing punting uh, the ultimate decision on how much to spend on defense and domestic programs in fiscal year 2018, which, by the way, started on October 1st. Um, they're a bit late uh, in making that decision, but they will punt that decision yet again, and um, it talks are that they may punt it to December 22nd. Why is that important? December 22nd is the Friday before Christmas, and uh, in the six years that I've been following the federal budget here in Washington, it's almost, you can put money on it that almost every year you will see lawmakers taking a highly controversial vote, usually on a spending bill that will blow up the deficit, often by tens of billions, sometimes by hundreds of billions of dollars, and they will do that um, the Friday before Christmas. Um, because that is uh, one of the surest way to get your gravy train through the Congress, is threaten lawmakers with having to stay here in Washington when all they want to do is really go home and be with their families. That's not how you get good policy, um, but that is how Congress likes to operate for the exact reason that it gives them political cover, that we had no other choice but to take uh, this bad vote to avert a government shutdown, to make sure we get to go home for Christmas. But there are lots of opportunities throughout the year for lawmakers to fight for spending restraint, and this is uh, one of those opportunities. There is, by the way, no particular reason that they need to be taking this vote on December 22nd or December 30th. They could punt it until January and make a more deliberate decision about the size and scope of the federal government. Oftentimes, you'll also hear lawmakers support, in theory, that we need to reduce spending and the debt, and they might say, we, sh we need to reduce and control mandatory spending. And that is very much true. Mandatory spending is the two-thirds of the budget that grows on autopilot every single year, the vast majority of which is compri comprised of Social Security and health care programs. And in the long run, yes, we absolutely need to reform these programs. But the decision before lawmakers today is about the discretionary budget. And that, too, can be shrunk as um, reports such as Senator Langford's uh, federal funds report show. And uh, lawmakers don't take the opportunity when it is presented to them to make such important cuts happen. And it's not always only about uh, the size of those cuts because, for example, uh, we are projected to spend over the next 10 years a total of over $50 trillion dollars. $50 trillion is what's currently projected the federal government will spend over 10 years in totality. The Budget Control Act uh, that was uh, enacted in 2011 put in place mechanisms to cut spending by $2 trillion. Um, I, I wouldn't call those cuts draconian, but if you go back and look at what lawmakers said at the time about these cuts, that's exactly what they said. It would be the end of the world. They, these are draconian cuts. We cannot allow them to happen. And by the way, please look the other way because discretionary spending is not the problem. But discretionary spending is exactly what's on the table right now. How are lawmakers going to 
build credibility with the general public for major entitlement reforms to very, very popular programs like Medicare and Social Security if they don't start with their own budgets first. And I think that is, there's a major disconnect here. The American people have an expectation that Congress will take opportunities to cut spending and cut spending when it comes to government agencies, when it comes to government budgets, when it comes to federal employee uh, uh, benefits. Um, if, if they ha are going to have any credibility to make the important um, entitlement reforms that will be ultimately necessary if we don't want to head down uh, a future where we look like Japan or uh, many European countries, which by the way, what that looks like is economic stagnation, less economic opportunity, much less financial independence for, um, for people, and a, um, a much lower uh, discretionary budget for people in terms of what you can spend your money on, the things that you care most about, because much more of it will be consumed by taxes. And those decisions um, that are before us today are important. The, the, the immediate decision is that the Budget Control Act um, imposes a really teeny tiny sequestration if Congress um, doesn't make a budget deal this year. It, it's, it's only about $2 billion. It's really not a lot of money, given that we're looking at over a trillion dollar budget. The Heritage Foundation, my colleagues and I, we put together a congressional budget proposal. It's called Blueprint for Balance. It's available online as well. We found $87 billion in cuts in discretionary programs alone just for next year. And the way we selected those programs for cuts is that we asked a couple of important questions. First of all, is this a federal priority? Does the federal government have a constitutional mandate to provide this program or service? Or is this something that properly belongs within the private sector or state and local government? At what level of government should this program be administered? Another question we asked, and this has to do with reports like federal fumbles, is this program well managed? What do we know about this program in terms of uh, waste, duplication, and um, other inefficiencies? If this is a program that has a long history of being wasteful, inefficient, and is perhaps duplicative of many other federal programs, then that is a program that we selected um, for cuts. Those are some simple questions, and if you ask those questions, you will find a long list of government programs um, you can cut. And a couple of reasons for reducing them um, as well, and this is another question we asked, is this a program that provides broad benefits? Is this in the, in the general interest of the public, or is this a program that is really bestowing special privileges upon certain industries certain organizations, um, so-called corporate welfare or favoritism. And we found dozens upon dozens of programs that in fact distort markets, making our economy less dynamic and reducing economic growth overall by picking winners and losers in the marketplace. Those programs do not just exist in a tax code, they also exist on the federal spending side. And so we, um, we selected those for um, elimination. Congress is now debating whether to pass a massive budget deal to avoid just these kinds of choices. And sometimes we'll say that um, cutting spending is just hard. We have to make tough choices. But when you're asking simple questions like this and you can identify lots of programs that qualify, those aren't really tough choices. Those are common sense choices. Those are choices about 
making sure that we right-size the federal government so it, um, it properly meets the size and scope requirements that the federal government should have, and we don't blow it up only because we're spending other people's money, because that's exactly what's going on right now. So what is Congress debating right now? They're talking about potentially uh, busting the uh, current spending limits in place that the Budget Control Act put in effect by $200 billion. If you look back over the past five years that the Budget Control Act has been in effect, there have been uh, deals made, but every time a budget deal was made to increase defense and domestic programs, it, that deal was paid for with uh, new revenue raisers, such as uh, user fees, with spending cuts in other areas, like on the mandatory side of the budget. And yes, they used gimmicks, and not all of those cuts were real savings, but at least they made an attempt. This budget deal, at $200 billion would be $30 billion bigger than the previous three budget deals combined. This budget deal will spend, would spend more over the next two years than the previous five years of deal making combined. And that is a legacy that is absolutely irresponsible and reckless, especially when, when we currently have a Congress that uh, ran on a platform of reducing the size and scope of government. Um, so what can, what can we do? Well, one thing lawmakers can do is just keep the caps in place. Um, swallow the teeny tiny sequestration and, uh, and move on. Or if they are going to make revisions to the Budget Control Act, then they sh must make sure that any spending increase for defense or non-defense programs should be offset with spending cuts in other areas. That means pay for the additional spending that you want to put in place. In, in, while they're doing so, if we're going to revise the Budget Control Act, there are several improvements that lawmakers should consider to strengthen uh, fiscal responsibility and accountability and transparency in government going forward. One is eliminate the category caps. Instead of having arbitrary caps on defense and non-defense, we would have a much better political dynamic if we had one overall spending cap on the entire discretionary budget. It would encourage lawmakers when they, when they, when, when they see a need to increase defense spending to find those savings on the domestic side of the budget, which is what the president in, um, proposed in his budget where he suggested over $50 billion in cuts that lawmakers could adopt that the president support. So we know that if they made it to the president's desk, those would go through. Another change that's important is that lawmakers are circumventing even the new spending limits they will put in place with uh, budget gimmicks. Uh, one such budget gimmick is called changes in mandatory programs. The House budget last year uh, included a proposal to phase those down and then eliminate them entirely over a few years. Fake savings uh, should be eliminate and change uh, should be eliminated and changes in mandatory programs must be on the top of that list. Another change that should be incorporated is that Congress has a tendency to spend a lot of money right now and then pay for it eight, nine, ten years down the road, and sometimes those spending cuts never materialize because they get reversed before they ever take effect. If lawmakers want to use such a gimmick, spend now and save later, they should cover the cost of that gimmick by incorporating the additional interest that will be incurred in the process of doing so. So the, um, we have an opportunity before us right now where lawmakers can take a stance and um, firmly declare whether they are in favor of 
reducing the size and scope of government or increasing it, and that is how they're going to decide on the Budget Control Act. And in addition to decisions over how much to spend and to pay for that spending, there are other budget process reforms that they could incorporate now that would strengthen fiscal responsibility, accountability, and transparency in government um, going forward. Thank you. Hi. Thanks to Cato and to Chris uh, for having me. I'm Steve Ellis, Vice President of Taxpayers for Common Sense, a national nonpartisan budget watchdog. Um, and we've had a lot to watch recently. Uh, thanks to Senator Lankford for uh, his report. I think reports like this are helpful because they put a face on waste and help bridge people into bigger budget issues. Uh, when we started in 1995, we launched with the Budget of the Living Dead, looking at federal spending pro uh, programs that were once eliminated and came back to life. So it's certainly something we're familiar with. And one of the things we found over the years is that no matter where you are in the political spectrum, nobody wants to see their tax dollars wasted. When we were launched uh, more, more than 20 years ago, we identified a few words, a few questions as to what is waste and what to do about it. Our fundamental principles were, if it doesn't work, don't fund it cut unnecessary subsidies in corporate welfare, avoid long-term liabilities for taxpayers, expose and stop corruption, and ensure fair market value for taxpayer assets. As I read through Senator Lankford's report, I found myself nodding my head at many of them, many of the items. Wasteful spending on the Air Force Operations Center, as, as uh, Chris mentioned, duplicative regional development commissions like the Appalachian Regional Commission, poor targeting of natural resource conservation uh, service conservation funding, cost overruns on acquisitions, not charging adequate uh, grazing fees, the list goes on. And I can add to it. Spending more cash on highways than the gas tax generates. Zero contribution from industry to maintain the inland waterway system. Wasting tens of billions of dollars on a literal combat ship that can't combat, only operate in permissive environments. Uh, overly generous agri agricultural entitlement programs that are duplicative and more than $18 billion over projections. Spending more than a trillion dollars on modernizing all legs of the nuclear deterrent triad when subs and bombers would do. And I'll stop there. Uh, as I said, these discussions can bridge into bigger uh, budget discussions, and I'd like to hit on a few topical ones, so I'm going to do just that. Uh, Ramina talked about the potential um, budget deal. Uh, the BCA, the Budget Control Act, um, Ramina, sorry, uh, promised us uh, $1.2 trillion in deficit reduction. That hasn't gotten less important. You look at the difference between projected spending and FY in the FY12 budget request, which was the last budget request before the BCA, and uh, what's actually been spent in reality, and, and it's, it's significant. We're spending hundreds of billions, we've saved hundreds of billions of dollars because of the BCA. And this is despite Congress never really living under the caps. As was already mentioned, uh, they've been amended three times and are most certainly going to be amended again um, in the Bipartisan Budget Act 3.0. Um, but having to go through these hoops means that they get less than they would absent the cap, as was mentioned about offsets and gimmicks. Um, but they still have had to, um, to game the system, which meant that they, they still couldn't spend as much as they really wanted to. Um, one other thing, Ramaya mentioned the, uh, the sequestration, which would be if you continued to at spending at FY17 levels for FY18. Um, but 
you often hear the term sequestration, and that was, that's accurate, but you often hear the term sequestration thrown around as a scare tactic, as something that, oh, we have to get rid of these mindless um, uh, across-the-board cuts. But the truth of the matter is, is that we have budget caps that have been established. As long as you don't exceed the budget caps, you don't have any sequestration. There are no mindless across-the-board cuts. It's just something to get people um, um, worked up. Uh, and uh, that, But this doesn't mean, even though we have had some control from the Budget Control Act, uh, that the current caps, uh, that even under the current caps, the money is being well spent. For instance, in the Senate Defense Appropriations Bill, there was nearly $7 billion for procurement and research and development programs and projects that the, pres that the, that the Pentagon didn't request a single dime for. So there was zero requests, but Congress still stuffed money into these uh, parochial programs. Another thing that we look at is outside the budget caps. If the overseas contingency account was a separate agency, it would be, depending on the year, the third to the fifth largest federal agency in, in government. And this is really just a slush fund for extra defense spending and an end run of the caps. For instance, in some years, it's included things such as military construction, which military construction, even if it's done overseas, is not a contingency. It's well planned out in advance, and it's actually five-year funding. So it's sort of, it, it shouldn't ever be in, in OCO, as it's called. Shifting gears, another thing that we're going to be talking about a lot here soon is disaster spending. And speaking of programs that could be their own agency and evade the caps, this is certainly one of them. And just to put things in perspective, Superstorm Sandy back in 2012 resulted in $50 billion in disaster funding plus another $10 billion in flood insurance borrowing authority. The Texas governor has asked for $60 billion. The Puerto Rican governor has asked for, the Puerto Rico governor has asked for nearly $100 billion. The risk center at uh, the Wharton School of Business uh, documented that federal disaster assistance after Hurricane Hugo uh, in 1989 was less than 30% of the total response. After Sandy, it was more than 75% was uh, federally uh, based. The Congressional Research Service has estimated that over a 10-year span, half of the total appropriations the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has received was emergency disaster assistance. Texas has asked for more than $30 billion in Army Corps of Engineers funding. That's six times the total annual budget for the Corps for the entire country. Another program, uh, the Community Development Block Grant, CDBGDR, disaster response, is not even authorized. Uh, so you have a program that Basically, each administration stands up through their HUD department, and you can imagine how inconsistent that would be, that a President Bush CDBGDR after Katrina, Rita, and Woolman in 2005 would be dramatically different than an Obama one after Sandy, and then will be a Trump one after the storms Harvey, Irma, and Maria. And so you have a program that, that Congress has basically ceded authority over, over how to construct it, how, what should, how the funding should be allocated, what should actually get funded. And so that was a program that got $15 billion after Sandy. That's five times what CDBG, uh, CDBG, regular CDBG, normally gets. So you also have a program that isn't well regulated that is being run by a small number of people because they're not normally are dealing with that large of amount of money. It's already gotten $7.5 billion or almost $7.5 billion in um, this year, the DR program, the CDBG DR, and they're asking, the administration asked for another $12 billion for a very ill-defined mitigation uh, CDBG program. So I don't know if that would be CDBG-M. But anyway, that, so 
this is something where there needs to be greater oversight and accountability, and it becomes more of a slush fund. And just generally on disaster programs, we need to be reforming those. We should be having, looking at the Stafford Act, to have a sliding scale of disaster assistance to encourage communities to actually uh, invest in their own mitigation, be uh, planning for these uh, tragic but inevitable disasters in many of these cases. Every dollar should pre-spawn to future disasters and then also all the disaster funding has to be more transparent and accountable. It is extremely hard, particularly with the CDBG funds, when they get to the state and the localities to actually see where the money is actually being spent. If we don't know where it's being spent, we don't know if it's being spent wisely and appropriately. And then uh, flood insurance reauthorization. Uh, just like the federal budget, the, the, um, the flood insurance program's authorization expired September 30th. It caught a ride on the CR. It's now extended to December 8th, tomorrow. It's likely to get a, catch another ride on that. Um, flood insurance is a program that, but for recent debt forgiveness um, of $16 billion, would be more than $40 billion in debt to taxpayers. It takes in a little more than $3 billion in premiums every year. So you get a uh, idea of how badly underwater, forgive the pun, uh, the program is. It's broken and it's getting worse. The House has passed an evolutionary reform bill that we supported, um, and it's, it's modest even, I would say. Uh, the Senate hasn't even taken up their bill. Private flood insurance, and why this is important is because we can shift some of this responsibility off of the, uh, off of the federal government and into the private sector. Private flood insurers want to write flood. Reinsurers are eager to help cover that. Financial markets have developed better products to hedge risk. Modeling and mapping is more advanced. The federal government just has to give up its monopoly. Um, I could, you can tell, go more into this, but um, I won't for your sake. Uh, lastly, I just want to hit on tax extenders. Um, we've been hearing from the Senate that they're planning on taking up a tax extender package, um, maybe coupled with a CR. Without going into the current tax legislation, this is a package of small bore tax uh, policy provisions that are the very opposite of reform, the very opposite of simplification, and exactly what was supposed to be ended in tax reform. So in conclusion, we're a nation $20 trillion in debt, which is more than 100% of GDP. According to CBO, net interest to service that debt clocked in at $240 billion for fiscal year 2016. By 2027, that is expected to top $800 billion more than the entire Defense Department today. This is going to require an all-of-the-above strategy, budget caps, entitlement reform, and real tax reform. And so with that, I will conclude and turn it over to Ryan. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Steve, and thank you to all of you for coming here today. Um, reading through Senator Lankford's book reminded me of what Milton Friedman described as the four types of spending. There's spending your own money on yourself when you tend to, to go out and buy something that you like and something that you want and try to get it at good value for money. There's spending somebody else's money on yourself when you're not as, as bothered about the uh, value for money but still look to get something that, that you want. They're spending your money on somebody else. You might have all taken part in secret Santas recently. Um, then you, you look to get good value for money, but again, aren't as bothered about perhaps about the content as the gift as you would be if it's for yourself. And then finally, you can spend somebody else's money on somebody else. And then you don't tend to be concerned about either the value or the content of the spending. 
And I fear that when you read through some of the examples um, in this book, it's pretty obvious that, um, by and large, government spending tends to operate as the fourth type of Milton Freeman's spending. Uh, this event, though, comes at an opportune time because at the moment uh, there's a 22-strong uh, task force of House Republicans currently drawing up ideas for alternatives uh, to the current debt ceiling or how to revise the debt ceiling and trying to shape future budget processes in the direction of fiscal probity. And I just want to kind of remind us of the long-term challenge that the US faces here. Because what really matters from uh, the perspective of debt sustainability is the debt-to-GDP ratio. Um, and that's already high by historic standards and um, on an un unsustainable trajectory. Federal debt held by the public was 77% in 2016, and that was the highest level that it's been since 1950. And whereas after World War II, the debt-to-GDP ratio fell substantially for three decades, it's now projected to rise ever upwards on unchanged policy. The CBO projects the federal budget deficit will widen to 5.2% of GDP by 2027 on unchanged policies, uh, ballooning the public debt to 91.2% of GDP. That excludes, and I know it's a debate that we're having at the moment, but that excludes any deficit widening impact of the tax reform bill. Over the next 30 years, the fiscal outlook is forecast to worsen substantially. In the absence of reforms to entitlement programs, debt held by the public is projected to rise to 150% of GDP by 2047, driven primarily by increases in spending, as Romina mentioned, on Social Security and Medicaid, um, and with those widening deficits then also having the impact of raising debt interest further uh, by another 4.8% of GDP. Now, economists are notoriously divided about what the optimal level of government debt should be, but even those more relaxed, um, usually about higher government debt levels, uh, today seem to be expressing the case for aiming for a gradual reduction in debt, um, particularly given its current high levels. And it's been... Um, a welcome change that over the last week or so as tax reform has been discussed, uh, people who have been uh, perhaps um, more laid back about debt increases over the past eight years have suddenly become fiscal hawks again. There are good reasons for this. Um, for a start, very high debt levels have been found across countries to be associated with slower economic growth. Um, high government debt levels, of course, reduce future policy space and make the country more vulnerable to, to unpredictable or unforeseen economic shocks. And then there's the usual concerns about intergenerational equity too. Um, so quite simply, federal politicians should be taking either steps to get debt down um, on a downward path in anticipation of the entitlement crisis, and that touches to the point that Romina made about the need to, to cut uh, discretionary spending, or reforming entitlement programs themselves, given this outlook, or preferably both. Now, on this front, we've had some good noises from Congress uh, in recent weeks. And in a forthcoming paper, I review both the theory and evidence from around the world on the use of fiscal rules as a component of shaping good fiscal outcomes. By fiscal rules, I mean binding constraints on politicians in the budget process, with the idea that by setting explicit constraints on spending, uh, deficits or debt, politicians will be constrained into delivering uh, fiscal repair pressured by the, uh, either the political costs of failing to hit their targets or um, some direct costs through enforcement mechanisms. 
So in this paper, I look at the experience of fiscal rules both in the US and around the world, um, including in countries where fiscal rules have been perceived to be a success, countries like Switzerland and Chile. And uh, though we haven't got time to go through all the details, I thought I'd outline some of the broad conclusions from the work. The first and most important, I think, is there needs to be the political will to achieve fiscal discipline and maintain fiscal rules. If you look around the world, there are extensive examples of politicians notionally signing up to rules and then abandoning them as soon as they begin to bite or finding ways to circumvent them through off-balance sheet financing, for example. So whilst effective rule design can help the functioning of an effective fiscal policy, it is not sufficient to ensure fiscal discipline. Second, uh, rules often fail because they get abandoned in what are perceived to be extreme times, usually following recessions or when growth is slower than expected. So inflexible rules, uh, strict deficit targets or strict annual bu balanced budget rules, um, tend to be abandoned or revised in the face of difficult circumstances. So with fiscal rules, it's not always the case that the explicitly stricter is better. In fact, rules that have uh, flexibility but have mechanisms built in to get you back to the path that you wanted to be on uh, tend to be more effective and politically durable. Third, the primary outcome for a US fiscal rule, uh, in my view, should be getting the debt-to-GDP ratio back on a downward path sustainably over the coming decades. I think that's important, uh, as I said, because of the current high level of debt and the expectations of ballooning deficits on unchanged policies. Fourth, I think a good fiscal rule should operate primarily through capping government spending, since that's the variable which politicians have most control over. As we're seeing with this debate on tax reform and its impact on growth and how that will affect revenues, tax revenues are to a large extent determined by the health of the economy, the prospects for which can be uncertain and driven by factors outside of political control. Deficits, likewise, are merely a function of spending and tax revenue. So ta uh, spending has really got to be the thing that politicians control. Now, that fall in debt to GDP ratio can be achieved through a balanced budget rule that seeks to balance spending and revenues, as economists would say, over the economic cycle. Now, how you define what the economic cycle is is a good question, but the most uh, effective rules around the world tend to be ones that uh, cap spending in, in, in any given year according to a, a trend of revenues which is calculated from what's happened in the previous years. Uh, that kind of rule is flexible in that it allows borrowing during times of unexpectedly slow growth uh, through automatic stabilizers, but over, over the longer term, it produces the same result as a, a balanced structural budget year on year. Sixth, any spending rule should govern as much government spending as possible to try and disable creative accounting. It is better, it, I know people always debate this, but it's better to include, for example, investment spending within the expenditure limit, because otherwise, um, as politicians like Gordon Brown in my own country did, there's an incentive to define more and more activities uh, as investment. Um, if there is a concern, and I know some in this room would probably share this concern, that governments would, be, would find it easier to cut certain uh, spending to hit targets, whether that be investment spending or defence, then you can always add in a supplementary rule to protect that uh, expenditure. But um, again, the experience in the UK of ring fencing uh, vast areas of the budget has meant that huge cuts have then needed to be made in other areas, and now 
the deficit reduction plan as a result doesn't seem to be politically sustainable. Entitlement spending should likewise be included. Um, if a structural balanced budget rule is implemented over long periods, then that puts pressure to reform entitlements. But it also enables, if for political reasons politicians don't want to do that straight away, it also enables them to focus on discretionary spending to start off with and uh, then reform entitlements as those problems begin to bite. Um, seventh, any large deviations from spending caps should then be made up for in future spending plans. If you overspend in one year and there's been uh, no uh, change in the trend, then you should uh, adjust spending downwards in subsequent years to reflect that. You really do need this uh, law to bite and you really do need to balance the budget effectively over the cycle. Otherwise, you end up in situations where have, you tend to have continuous um, over-optimistic forecasts, which is something that they're struggling with uh, in Chile at the moment, where they've got a large structural deficit, even though notionally their rule um, uh, works against that. Two final things. Uh, eighth, there should be a clear but limited escape clause for genuine emergency situations, times of war. There has, you know, that should be written into the legislation to start off with, but with a high hurdle um, for operating that through congressional votes. And finally, and perhaps um, one of the most important ones, the best way to obtain credibility for a fiscal rule is actually to get to the stage where it matters. Uh, preaching fiscal discipline like St. Augustine saying, Lord, give me fiscal discipline, but not yet, is not a credible strategy. Pushing targets for achieving balance further into the future is especially dangerous. And uh, I know Romina mentioned this with 10-year budgeting. Given so much can change from the political situation to new economic downturns within that period. The IMF currently estimates the US is running a structural budget deficit of 2.3% of GDP. I see no reason, given the fiscal consolidation that you've seen in other areas around the world, why that couldn't be eliminated effectively over a three to four year period to achieve structural balance uh, just after the end of this president's first term, and then to allow for a new fiscal rule to become the new norm. That, I think, should be the aim uh, of Congress in the coming years, and I look forward to the task force submitting their ideas for how fiscal rules can help. Uh, given the, the debt outlook and given once tax reform is done, we'll get new baselines set out for expected revenues. Uh, the Republicans now can get on with the serious business of trying to hold down the path of spending and to get that debt-to-GDP ratio on a downwards path again and to ensure long-term uh, fiscal sustainability. Thank you. Thanks a lot, uh, Ryan. Uh, we can go to questions from the audience uh, in a few minutes while we uh, wait for the senator uh, to arrive. <clears throat> I'm going to ask the, uh, the first question, and that is, uh, I think Steve sort of mentioned that the, uh, I think you mentioned that the Budget Control Act, which was a law passed in 2011 that has put uh, caps on the discretionary part of the budget. My understanding is, Steve, you were saying uh, you think it worked, even though Congress has cheated a number of times on the BCA. Uh, do you think it's better that, you know, Congress uh, you know, and uh, President Obama agreed to that and put it into law, um, then, then if not, and maybe Romina has a, a view on that too. Sure. Uh, yes. I mean, I, nobody really liked the Budget Control Act. I mean, it, it's not exactly a popular piece of legislation and actually it didn't quite work as originally intended because they were forming the super committee to come up with the cuts. They came up with zero. So then we got the, the budget caps. But when you look at what 
uh, President Obama wanted to spend that Congress would have largely gone along with, when you look at that budget, it did have some effect, maybe not as much as I would have liked um, because of some of the gimmicks, but it definitely had some effect and we're in a, believe it or not, better fiscal situation now than we would have been absent that. Just to add to it, it, it gives us a fiscal goal. It gives us a limit that Congress should strive to stay below and inevitably they want to spend more than whatever the limit is and it really doesn't matter where you set the limit they will always find reasons to spend more but in the process of um, wanting to do that we are having a debate we're having a public debate and a uh, uh, and they have to revise a law that's currently in place. So they have to make give more justifications for why they should be spending more. Without such a goal, they can just come up with whatever budget they want. And it puts pressure on lawmakers to pay for those spending increases with spending cuts elsewhere. And all of those are um, good mechanisms and good incentives that have brought about uh, reduction in the overall level of spending we would have otherwise witnessed. All right, we can open it up. If, uh, yes. Um, immediately, Democrats are demanding parity. That is something that uh, President Trump departed from with the last um, mini-budget deal, if you will, that he forged um, in March uh, with the Democrats. So um, what we're hearing is that without parity, we're looking at about $182 billion in spending increases over two years. So that'd be 90 91 billion for this year and the next fiscal year. Um, if Democrats succeed in achieving parity, we'd be looking at 200 billion total. So they're already really close. The, the immediate trade-off is, um, even though the president in his budget asked for a defense increase to be paid for with domestic spending cuts, um, Democrats have already gotten to the point where they are also going to see a spending increase. There are some other um, issues mostly unrelated to spending that are on the table that Democrats are pushing that has to do with the children's health insurance program, which um, expired, and uh, they could be, it could be facing cuts if they don't uh, reauthorize it. And then Democrats are also pushing um, for Congress to pursue uh, DACA protections. Um, those are the two um, main main proposals that are being pushed right now. Um, but there's other things that could potentially be put into such a deal. Uh, we're looking at a gravy train that will leave the station uh, pretty soon and will arrive at its destination just right before Christmas. And I think one of the mistakes uh, being made right now, which is what fiscal conservatives have also criticized uh, uh, and created a brief stalemate, in fact, on tax reform uh, just uh, this week, is uh, the date. December 22 is a really, really bad date. I think the alternative date of December 30th is also a bad date. Um, and one way that they could get around that mini sequestration that they might face in uh, January if they don't get the budget deal done before is to just um, have a continuing resolution that goes into January and include in it a delay of that sequestration. And then you have a much better date without um, Christmas being right around the corner and a much better chance of getting a better deal. 
on the Heritage website, I know uh, Romine has got a nice piece describing where we are with discretionary spending and what Congress ought to do uh, in the days ahead. Anyone else? Yes, sir. As I understand current Treasury Department policy, disbursements are made as spending obligations become due, regardless of intention. Are there any efforts in Congress right now to impose, or do any of your organizations favor imposing, a set of disbursement priorities so that the next time there's a government shutdown, things like interest on the national debt will always be paid first? Happy to take that one, too. So. This is actually, I, I love your question because it gets at something that um, both parties are guilty for conflating in previous years, which is uh, government shutdowns and the debt limit. Um, a government sh for a government shutdown, there is an established uh, law and there are guidelines that OMB issues for um, what are essential government services that continue during a government shutdown and what payments do not go out the door. So government shutdowns, we have a very uh, clear structure for what Treasury has to do at that time. On the debt limit, we don't currently have that. What we have is Treasury discretion. And uh, we know, based on hearings that uh, happened last year, where um, um, Treasury was subpoenaed for information that, in fact, they are capable and they had plans in place to prioritize interest and principal on the debt had there been a, a debt limit impasse. There are some bills in the Congress to impose a prioritization regime that would codify that Treasury would have to prioritize interest and principal on the debt during a debt limit impasse. And there are some bills that go further and try to establish a prioritization regime as to what payments will be made after that. That's where it gets a little more complicated, where you might run up against um, impoundment um, issues. Uh, but certainly, Treasury has currently discretion to prioritize interest and principal on the debt. And they were planning to do so, absent congressional guidance. Uh, current prioritization bills could codify some of that and strengthen it. But we need to keep those two issues separate. Shutdowns and debt limits are very different um, issues, and they have very different mechanisms. And I think lawmakers um, have conflated the two um, in order to confuse the public about what's going on, and um, that has um, primarily benefited big spenders. I, I would just add, not to conflate the issues, but the debt limit does actually um, get reset tomorrow. Um, so it's it, also noting that, which then whatever the debt is tomorrow will be the new debt limit, and then Treasury will start doing their extraordinary measures, and I guess CBO estimates like March or April for when that would be um, exhausted. I got a question, uh, uh, maybe Steve or Romina or, or, uh, or, or Ryan. Uh, I think w one of you mentioned, uh, you know, the idea that you know we have uh, Congress works on, uh, with with ten-year budgeting uh, these days, which makes sense for entitlement programs. We want to, we all want to see, you know, the, how the costs in those entitlement programs are rising. And it struck me for a long time that the uh, for discretionary spending, ten-year budgeting is just completely phony and encourages Congress to. Um, uh, to, to make fake cuts in the out years, but you know, with discretionary spending, of course, it's the first year, year one, that is the only important year because, of course, next year, they got to come around to uh, appropriate again. So, uh, you know, I, so so I thought that maybe the Congress ought to move to a system where they have sort of one year budgeting for appropriations at the same time as very long term 
budgeting for entitlements somehow, but the 10-year stuff just seems to encourage cheating. Republicans will, will, will come out every uh, year or two with these 10-year uh, uh, plans that supposedly balance the budget magically in that year 10. It's just everyone knows it's, it's phony. So what, do you have any suggestions about you know, how budgeting, uh, you know, the, the duration of budgeting can change or should change? Well, one thing that we've supported has been doing biennial budgets. So, you know, essentially for the budget resolution being biennial so that you can kind of get a better sense and at least try something because the budget process isn't working right now. But then definitely on, I think it's worthwhile to have some estimate of where you're going and some estimate of what, what the costs are going to be. But absolutely, the only the year right in front of you is the year that matters as far as, uh, and maybe the next year, if you know, but in reality, you're talking about, in a 10-year budget window, you're not only talking about future Congresses, you're talking about a future president, um, and it, regardless of the term. So I, I absolutely think that makes sense. It also makes sense from an economic forecasting perspective as well, because um, I think the economist Jeffrey Frankel looked at this um, in a paper about 10 years ago, and he looked at um, forecasts by government agencies that had been done and tried to work out whether they'd been um, tended to be over-optimistic or under-optimistic at, at different stages. So one year ahead, two years ahead, uh, five, five to ten years ahead. And what he tended to find was that the error was relatively small, though they were over-optimistic um, one to two years ahead. But beyond that, there was a big over-optimism. So as you say, you can, you can draw up these plans which balance budgets on the, on the idea that we're going to have sustained, robust growth over a five-year period. But that... Um, that that tends to be over optimistic, and you know the economy is is constantly hit by unforeseen shocks, unforeseen things arising, and and that needs to be factored in. What's the uh, uh, what's the budget window in, in Britain? How do how do they budget, right? They tend to do it over a five year period, but um, we do tend to like look at our we do budget actually pass budgets annually. Um, I used to do it biannually, uh, twice a year, which was disastrous. But <laughs> so the. Um the 1974 Budget Act actually only requires Congress to budget over five years in their budget resolution. The, the um, 10 years is a choice. I, 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 liked, I think we need to also keep things separate. The budget resolution is a roadmap. It lays out a broader vision for uh, government. And, uh, and we also need to hold lawmakers accountable for the annual decisions they make, like right now on the continuing resolution and the budget deal. And we see, I see we have uh, our Looks special... Looks like Senator Lankford's here, uh, so I will uh, introduce him. Thank you very much, Senator, for, uh, for coming today. Uh, we're delighted to have you. Um, Senator James Lankford uh, uh, was in the House, uh, U.S. House, for four years, and then in 2014 he was elected to the Senate to replace uh, uh, Tom Coburn, then re-elected uh, in 2016. Uh, he has become a leading voice in, in the Senate for uh, cutting excessive regulations and wasteful spending. He serves on the Appropes Committee, uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs, as well as the Indian Affairs uh, Committee. Now, the Senator uh, is sponsoring uh, one piece of legislation that I think is a really great idea called the Taxpayers' uh, Right to Know Act. It's a spending transparency act. It would basically, as I understand it, require the OMB to set up a big database where the, they list every single federal program, they, uh, they, they list who the beneficiaries are, how much it costs, how many employees uh, the the, uh, the program requires uh, and the performance reviews uh, that have been done on these programs uh, by the GAO and other um, and other groups. So that piece of legislation seems really straightforward to me. I understand it's passed the House, but it hasn't passed the Senate yet. 
uh, so we can cross our uh, fingers on, on that. Uh, I was honoured to testify uh, in September to the Senator's uh, Government Affairs Subcommittee uh, about the OMB's current spending reform uh, effort, which uh, is uh, sort of uh, an ongoing uh, process, and I think we're going to hear a lot more about that OMB effort uh, next year in 2018. So with no further ado, uh, thank you very much, Senator, for showing up. Thank you. I'll try to be very brief. And are you all taking questions right now as well? Or oh, yeah, sure, we can take questions. E e either way, let me make a couple of brief comments on it. One is thanks for staying engaged in issues. Please don't give up saying that it hasn't passed the Senate yet, so it's not worth working on. It is worth working on. Uh, so continue to be able to uh, press on issues. Taxpayers' rights to know is a classic example of this. It's something we pressed on for six years. It's passed the House multiple times, gets stopped in the Senate, but every time we try to identify who's stopping in the Senate, work through the process of questions, be able to identify those questions, we make revisions that still keep the heartbeat of it and to continue to press. We're in that moment again uh, where we're exceptionally close to be able to working through this process uh, to be able to get it done. The goal of it is very straightforward and simple. You cannot find duplication government right now unless you go to the GAO and ask them. They'll take 18 months and do a study and come back and give you the results of that. That should take 18 seconds in a Google search, not 18 months with a GAO search. So we're trying to create a searchable database system where we know what every program is, not just what the nice fancy title of it is, what the program is, what it does, how many people work on that program, how many people they serve in that program, and how it's evaluated, if it's evaluated at all. It's a very simple, straightforward way to be able to identify duplication in government, both for outside individuals, for members of Congress and their staff, and also for the agencies themselves. There is this misnomer at times that the agencies created these dupl duplicative uh, entities on purpose. Most of the time, they don't. Uh, they got some sort of executive order down from someone saying, this is a priority of the executive team. Everyone look and see what you can do in your agency. And so every agency starts working on it. And within two years, they've got duplicative programs all over the government. And after they've done it three years, it's tradition. They need additional staff and additional funding for it. And all of them start rising up. And then they find out five years later, oh, we're all doing the same thing. They don't know either. So some way to be able to track the system would be exceptionally helpful on that. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to push is basic budget reform, uh, as is a common conversation. Uh, we've done the budget system since 1974, and it's worked all of four times. We should admit we don't wear the same ties and the same belts we wore in 1974. We probably don't need to have the same budget process we've had since 1974. So let's look at it again and stop saying this year it's going to work, this year it's going to work. It's not, and it won't work next year either. So some basic principles trying to get out of that. A two-year budget process. That allows more predictability for the agencies and for the American people. It allows more time to go through the negotiations. Has a set number. Also gives you a year to do the fight over it and a year to do uh, the oversight. Uh, that is much required and very little is actually done on that. If you give more time to the appropriations staff to do more oversight, they're more able to be able to accomplish that because of the time that they're allowed to be able to do it. So a two-year plan, finding a way to be able to align the agencies. It's the hidden secret in D.C. that you can't really do oversight over most agencies because that agency has three different committees they answer to on both sides of the hill. Well, if it takes three different committees to actually get anything done or changed, what does that mean? You're not going to get it done in two years, and somebody with a bad attitude on one of those committees is going to hold it up. And all they have to do is slow the process down to where it gets picked up in the next Congress and the cycle starts all over again. Our committees and our agencies aren't aligned anymore, and it permanently protects the agencies. It doesn't help Congress. It helps all the entities to be able to do what they want without real oversight. That it will be bloody and noisy because everyone has seniority on the committee and their favorite agency is now under them that committee, I get all of that. At some point, that has to be done. 
and those will be hard decisions that need to be made, but the sooner they can be made, the better that it is. Be able to put a process like that in place. And some basic budget reforms about how we do things like government shutdowns and debt ceilings and all those things has to be done. Uh, if we don't actually get a predictable process in that emphasizes how we're reducing spending rather than status quo or increasing it, we never turn this around. Uh, so the goal is to actually put processes in place that are going to help the product. We complain all the time about the product, and we spend very, very little time arguing about the process. The process is not near as exciting, but we're not going to fix this until we actually agree on a certain process to be able to get it done. So let me just take a couple of questions on things, if you all have any specific questions. Uh, everybody mostly looks like they're very hungry uh, for lunch, and so I want to be able to honor that as well. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Three, three committees in, in theory would give you room to have multiple entities have oversight. What really happens is you can never change anything in the agency. If you really want to do real oversight, you've got to have somebody that's responsible for that. It is the same adage of saying somebody knows needs to go grab a sandwich. If I say that to this group right now, no one will get up and do it because it's everybody's responsibility. If it's three different committees that have oversight on that agency, everyone either all does it because it's in the media this week, and so everybody wants to do a hearing on it, so they'll be on the media, or no one does it because they assume someone else has got it. You've got to have somebody that you can go to and say, that's your job. You need to oversee that. Even if they have a bad attitude, it's still their job. Let me take one more. Maybe a yes, sir. For the budget reform? Yes. I'd noticed. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So let, let me talk through a couple of things on that. Uh, the question was, uh, have I had the opportunity to be able to advocate in front of the House and the Senate leadership or members uh, how to be able to fix some of this mess? Yes. Let me talk you through a couple of those. The budget process reform I just talked about is something we've been actively working on now for two years. Uh, Chairman Enzi is on board uh, with many of the major budget reforms and has been very engaged on that. Uh, David Perdue uh, on the Senate side, uh, Steve Daines, myself, have all worked in a working group to be able to push that and to be able to determine how can we actually get to a spot where we can actually do real budget process reform that's going to fix what we're dealing with in the 74 Budget Act. Same thing on Senate rules. Uh, it is the favorite conversation of every House member is the problem with Senate rules. Uh, the Senate rules do have problems. Uh, let me start with just the basic nominations. I'm working right now through the Rules Committee uh, on the Senate side to be able to fix the nomination time period. We can't get to legislation because we're being slow walked on nominations. Uh, the Senate has to do nominations and legislation. Uh, so if, if we're locked in, and we're right now have about 1,200 nominees that we've got to go through with every new president, if we're locked in at 30 hours for every single one of those, it'll take 11 years to be able to get the president and his staff. Uh, Democrats are requiring slow walking all of these individuals. Again, if we're doing all these nominations, we can't even get to legislation on the floor. 
So one of the first things that has to be fixed is the nomination process. Limiting the amount of time that we can have for debate is not unreasonable, especially when the rule has already been changed, that there's only takes 51 people to actually move someone through the nominations. So the 30-hour delay is just purely dilatory. Uh, they've already gone through committee. They've already been approved on committee. Their outcome is certain on the floor. There's no reason to have 30-hour delay to block all legislation and the next nomination. We're working that through the process right now, trying to be able to gain momentum, reminding my Democratic colleagues that what you're doing to Republicans now will be rewarded to you the next time that there's a Democrat president, and that still shuts the government down. We've taken our gridlock from Capitol Hill and now spread it into every agency across Washington, D.C., because every agency, when you call them now and say, I need a decision, they say, I can't give you a decision. There's not a political appointee in this spot, and we have to wait till that gets there. That is not good for the American people. So, yes, we're working that through the process right now. No, I'd agree. There are, there are some nominations that are slow to come to us, uh, but we still have a several hundred backlog of those that have already gone through a committee that are sitting that we're, we can't get time on the floor to actually get them done. So. All right. Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. No, thanks for allowing me to be able to join the conversation.